how many have you have let's try again can i buy a vowel uh how many of you have read first thessalonians chapter two all right we get some good part um let's look at this uh today's talk is real simple it's the message and the motivation the message and motivation in one sense i want to say the message is very much the motivation but uh we'll look at that uh, we'll look at what that means and why that's important given that today uh there's oftentimes a sense that truth should stand on its own truth should is truth regardless of the communicator um you know it's uh these are the truths it doesn't matter uh, really what the motivation is as much. And for the Apostle Paul, motivation is so very much of the message. Uh, and so I want to take a look at that and um, why that matters so much to us today, uh, given our particular season we are in right now. Um, so let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 2. And uh, we're going to read <clears throat> the first part. I've got it broken out into three sections. Um, so let's begin at verse one. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And what is he talking about here? The opposition was those of you who know anything about the sort of church history, the early part uh, of this, um, is that the apostles are mostly Jews. Now there's starting to be some non-Jews that are entering in, but this is still early on. This is roughly in the 60s, uh, you know, CE or AD, uh, after uh, the time of Christ. And so we're not talking a whole lot of time. And so very, this is still very much a Jewish sort of faith. And uh, what they're, it's not that they're starting something that is different than the Jewish faith. They're believing that they are very much a part of the Jewish faith, but that they're, this has grown, this is expanding. And the problem with growth is that people don't like growth. I don't know if you know this. Maybe in your own life, maybe you don't like growth. I know I don't like growth. I like watching growth happen in other people. Yay, you're growing, it's wonderful. But when it happens to me, not so much because it requires a lot of uh, struggle and pain difficulty, and that's all part of growth. And so people don't like growth. People like, people are self-preservational by instinct. By now, it's a, that's the starting point of all humanity. This is where we like it. We like it to stay this way. Okay, so this is the Jewish faith. I finally understand it. Don't mess with my faith, okay? And that's primarily what's going on. It's not about truth. It's never been about truth. Nobody really cares about truth. We care about our biases being confirmed, <laughs> but we don't care about growth or truth. That's the starting point. Now, we, now uh, some of you have insulted you by saying that because you think you are, but if you look a little bit self-reflectively, like I have to, because I think I am growth-oriented, but if I look self-reflectively, I realize, no, nah, I'm really more confirming my biases in the areas that I like or things I like to think, but not really um, seeking for real transformation or real change. 
And so what had happened to Paul, the apostles, starting from Jesus, of course, and moving on, is that these people have had experience that has shifted the way they see God and the way they see themselves. Okay. Any change, by the way, that happens spiritually for any of us changes the way we see God and changes the way we see ourselves. If it's one or the other, it's not transformation. It's just an oscillation between the two. It's like, well, I don't see God that way anymore. I'm mad at God or whatever. You know, we go all get in that, those spaces. Like I'm angry with God. I'm frustrated with it. That's just, that's normal. That's part of what we go through. Or we start getting down on ourselves. Transformation is I have had a shift in the way I see myself and the way I see God. So myself and the world included, I, I've, I'm, I'm changing on how I see things. And that's what had happened for Paul and uh, the apostles. And so as they're beginning their teaching and they're talking about it, they're very much part of the Jewish faith. It's just an expansion. We're growing. Okay. We, we, we're not here. There's something, there's movement, right? All, everything that's healthy grows, <laughs> including our faith, our religious structures. They need to grow. They need to change. If people go, well, mine is the same. If the gospels is good for them, it's good for me. If their beliefs is good for them, it's good. For me. It's like, you're talking about, you know, something that has died. You're talking about something that hasn't changed. It has to grow if it's healthy. It has to develop. Rooted. That's the key. It has to be rooted within the tradition as it also grows and expands. It can't be just like, oh, I've changed and thrown the whole thing out. That's, many of us have done that. That's not it. It's rooted in the tradition, but it expands and it grows. And so that's what they're creating. Uh, and that's what they see themselves as, as doing. Problem is, that those who are paid to keep the system going, <laughs> you're changing things and people like what you're saying and their lives are being changed. And that's threatening my job. That's threatening my position. That's threatening me in some way. And I don't like that. And so angry with Paul, they become angry with the apostles and they begin to persecute them because they have some authority with them. Yeah, I love that. Thanks, Kevin. Who moved my cheese? Excellent. If you never read that book, you should. It's fantastic. Um, the, uh, the, they're, they're feeling the threats. They're starting to get the persecution. And Paul is saying to those who are following um, Jesus, and many of whom who are Jews and some who are non-Jews called the Gentiles, he's saying, look, guys, this is part of what happen when you begin to grow, right? I get contacts from people, you know, um, across the country who become clients. And oftentimes what they'll share with me is, yeah, the moment I started to change, man, my family didn't like the change. They didn't like that I was changing. <laughs> didn't like the change that was happening within me. They started accusing me of all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. That happens. Um, so let's take a look at what's happening here and continue. So this is the suffering he's speaking about. Um, strong opposition. So verse three, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not, but God who tests our hearts. Pause. I've heard this used by pastors who, who are a bit uh, on the edge who like to kind of like stick it to people and like, I'm not trying to please people. I'm trying to. Please. And that it gives an excuse for them being offensive, <laughs> but that's not the context. This is why we always talk about context being 
very important. Look at what he is saying, right? Because he goes on and he says this. Um, king, or verse five. Um, we, you, were, you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Okay. Now do you see the context? He's saying, we're not trying to please you. In other words, we're not trying to manipulate you. We're not trying to flatter you. We're not trying to throw stuff at you to get you to do something. It, it, Paul is making this argument to say, look, my motives, as far as I know, are pure. I was doing this for you and not just for me. And, and that is a contrast he's beginning to draw. And as he goes on, instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. So he flip-flops in the analogy, like young children, um, and then, uh, you know, a nursing mom. Because we loved you so much, we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel uh, to you. Now, what is he saying here is that in the age of where there wasn't a whole lot of exchange of coins or money in the ancient world, there's a lot of bartering. So if I did something for you, you would do something. So they lived in a very highly reciprocal system. There's a lot of reciprocity happening. So I do for you, you do for me. If you read anything in the ancient world, that's how it worked. And so Paul would, apostles would travel, preachers would travel, and they were expected to be fed and taken care of and have money given to them and lots of things. And Paul says, I didn't, even, I didn't even take that from you because I wanted to make sure that you understood that my motivation was not, you know, to take from you. So he's making this real strong argument for motivation. Um, and uh, so let's continue reading on. Uh, so verse 10, you are witness, you are witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believed. With each other, uh, with each of you, as a father deals with his own children. So see how it's all family, right? First, he starts off by saying we were like children among you. Then we're like a nursing mom. Now we're like a father. So everything is highly highly relational, not positional. Uh, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom in glory. The last verse in this first section is, and we also thank God continuous, continually because when God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. All right. So the first, this first section, verses one through 13. Hey, why does truth need anything else to it? Why does it need Paul to have to say all this stuff about his motivation, right? It seems superfluous. It's oftentimes ignored in sermons I hear and sermons I've preached, you know, in seminary that was never spent on motivation. It was spent on truth. What is the biblical truth here, right? And, uh, and so that's the passages we exegeted from Greek. You know, we spent a whole lot of time exegeting those passages, very little time in anything to do with motivation. And yet you see how much time Paul spends in proving and arguing that motivation really matters. 
Head nodding, yes. It's funny how I am. I, I have this conversation. I literally have this conversation with people who are like, why does all that stuff matter, Joel? Why does all motivation and, and, and all this stuff with the Enneagram matter? Like, why can't it just be the Bible? Literally, this is exactly what someone said to me. And, and, and it's like, well, that's exactly what the Bible's arguing. It's saying like motivation is so important that he spends all this time saying, look at the motivation that I'm trying to work towards. And this he's setting up as a contrast to others who are also teaching. His motivations were hidden. And so he's saying, let's deal with this because this is that important. Motivation matters. Um, and so uh, that's the question. Why, is truth, why does truth need anything else? If something on its own, uh, as some might say, let, let people uh, pick Paul or these other spiritual leaders, um, except that Paul has always been making the case that our motivations, and by the way, he does this elsewhere, not just in Thessalonians, that our love, our fruit is what we should be seeking and follow rather than just simply the cleverness. In other words, you, sp- you, you look at the lives of the people who are in spiritual leadership or who are in political leadership to ask yourself is, what is the motivation that is coming through? Where, what is the, is there love? Is there fruit? Is there fruitfulness? Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Is there fruitfulness in the sense that that love, patience, kindness is being communicated to other people and they're also taking it in and being blessed by it, you know? And that's how we're to look at at the fruitfulness of our own lives, you know, and of the lives of spiritual leaders in this country, most political leaders in this country. Uh, for truth to be impactful, Paul is arguing, is that the message must move from a place of love. It must come from a place of love. And uh, people have to receive it. It's both that I'm communicating this message that in Paul is saying, I'm communicating the gospel from a place of motivation that is, as he understood it, coming from a place of true love for them. And they then in turn received it. And as they received it, there was significant result from that. And this is always sort of the, the, the math to this thing, the equations. Plus the motivation and the receptivity. And we talked about that the first uh, Sunday we did uh, on Thessalonians 1, is that when your contribution matches the need of another person, there's fruitfulness, right? And that receiving your love, that you, you, know, you can keep trying to make them receive your love, but at some point you just got to give grace and say, it's time to move on. I've got to move on because there are others who will receive it. And Paul has noticed that. And the non-Jews are the ones who are saying, yes, and so he is bringing the truth, but from a, from a good motivation of love, and they are receiving it, and it's having significant impact in the world around him. It's changing lives everywhere. And all of us really want to have some kind of impact on people. We want to have some kind of significance in the lives of other people. And so that's kind of how we are to look at this. It's the same equation Paul uses, which is there's the truth that I believe I'm hearing, but there's also the motivation of my own heart. And if the motivation of my own heart is not right, then the message itself is lost. And be lost on other people. And if those people hear the message and the, see the motivation and they receive it, then there's great fruitfulness in their lives. Um, 
So secondly, um, the second part, let's uh, move. And that's verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered Build the Lord Jesus and the prophets who drove us out. Now, uh, when they, they displeased God and they were hostile to everyone, right? And then verse 16, in their effort to keep us from keep speaking to the Gentiles so that they might, um, that this is why they did what? That they're hostile in their effort to try to keep people from being safe, to keep the Gentiles from receiving this, right? In this way, they're heaping up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come on past. So this is back to what I started saying was, there are these people who are in position of authority, who have power, and who feel threatened because Paul is recognizing that as he speaks this wonderful message of growth and transformation to the lives of, of people, uh, that the non-Jews are the ones who are seeing that, hearing that, seeing the motivation and receiving the message and they're being transformed. And now it is a threat to those who are in power to maintain this religious system that was for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. And so they displease God, as Paul says, and they're hostile to everyone in their effort to keep to the Gentiles. And believe me when I say that those who are in this position would have had the loudest voice and the most impactful voice in their world. They would have been speaking out, writing, you know, they would have, they would have had that, uh, that positional authority. And they would have been arguing that this is wrong, what Paul is doing, that it is not biblical, that it is not godly. They would have argued those points. And so Paul is also making this appeal that if that seems confusing to you, remember what I just said. Look at the motivation. Look at the fruit. If you don't see love, peace, and so on, then that's a good indication. And so this is why I call this section, the first part, verses 1 through 13, is truth in love. Let's do the motivation, truth in love. The second part is unrestrained love, 14 through 16. The difference between what Paul was doing and his counterparts is that they wanted to be, they were beginning to be hostile. They were saying, this is, this is the narrow path that they were describing, the narrow way. They all use that, by the way. So this is the narrow path and the broad path. That was a common, um, that was a common uh, way of communicating um, the, 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 the spiritual path. And so the religious leaders would have used it just as Jesus did, but pointing to their. And, um, and so Paul is pointing out to this. If you want to know the truth, you sometimes can get confused by these clever arguments. Look at the motivation. Look at how a person lives, not just what they say. So verses 14 through 16, Paul is communicating this unrestrained love of God that's ever expansive and generous, and moving outward, and getting bigger. And the umbrella is getting bigger, so that all people can come. Whereas others had a stingy sort of approach. And, um, and that's why he says they're hostile. They're hostile to this uh, message.
And so lastly, Paul finishes with verses And for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. His glory and joy, again, the contrast there is the glory and joy is not that uh, our system is winning against the system of the, of the world, you know? We're winning, our culture's winning, our better way is winning, you know? Um, it's not that. For him, his hope, his glory is not, I'm you know, evangelicals have been guilty of this. I've been guilty of this as an evangelical pastor of preaching that it's about going to heaven. I haven't done that in a long time, but in the early days I did. It's about going to heaven. That's our heaven. This is where we're going. For Paul, it's our glory, our crown, our joy is actually the people that we have won in relationship to ourselves. That's a powerful message. And there's and 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 there's something to be said about this for Paul. And you'll see in chapter three next week we're going to look at this. His focus is relationship. Did you notice the language again? Children, meaning innocent. Like a mother, meaning nurturing. Like a father, meaning providing. (laughs) In the ancient world, that's how it would have been understood. That's how it would have been seen, right? It's all relationship language. About you and me, the gospel, my friends, is not about some abstract truth to which all people must agree to that definition in order to go to an eternity and live there forever and ever in individual. This is not the message of Jesus Christ. It is not the message of Paul. The message of Paul is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you and I understand the ever expansive and inclusive love of God that is there to win all and to bring us back into right relationship with one another, which, my friends, is by far the hardest thing you will ever do. <laughs> it is the hardest thing. Don't I mean, look, you know what I'm talking about, right? The hardest thing in the world to do quality, healthy, long lasting relationships. Because it requires you to die to your ego. It requires you to die to things that you and me want, that is greed, that is selfish, that has to do with me. Those are the things we have to die to in relationship. And so that's one of the measurements that Paul uses. Is who's our crown, who's our glory? In other words, what legitimizes me as an apostle? Isn't it you? It's you. It's the quality of relationships. It's the fruitfulness of those relationships. It's the love that's exchanged between us. One of the uh, church historians who's the early church said, you know, one of the things that was absolutely overwhelmingly uh, attractive to the outside world was this love that the early church shared with one another. Like attractive because they'd never seen anything like it but it bordered on um 
it bordered on immorality in the minds of a lot of others because it was they thought immorality was happening because it was so much love exchanged between folks in those circles right and yet of course they they they're the, the you know paul's argument is that this should never lead to immorality actually it's the opposite right because immorality has to do with again what's in it for me as opposed to what's in it for you so it's beautiful it's beautiful so here's what i could do I'd like you to uh, think right now, and then we'll put in the chat or um, we'll unmute you and you can share. This. Think about the, the, the treasure that you have had, that you've gained from, um, from a friendship or from some friendships you've had. Over I'd like you to think about a friend or maybe a several friends and what they have contributed when what has been the gift to you in your relationship with them i'd like you to share that or uh, verbally with us and there's a reason for this exercise we'll tell you afterwards If you want to share, uh, wave at us so we can see. If you want to verbally do so, if you want to put in the chat, go ahead, put in the chat. Oh, if you have had anything that any one of your friends have given to you, come on. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak up real quick because um, I literally started my morning here. Uh, Two friends who one one year ago a little over a year ago we got together and we wrote challenges and blessings for each other and um each of us lived into those challenges and blessings through 2020 and one of the biggest things was that they and i put it in the chat that they they didn't kind of say oh i think you're going this direction go do this way over here it's they voiced and embodied what it already felt like God was saying and embodied what was already happening within me. And they, they empowered and brought to life the thing uh, and, and they like breathed fresh air. They like watered the seed that had been planted there already. And because of that, then I think I would have done because it was a, such a powerful experience. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. There's some uh, good, um, yeah, some good comments here. I think it's Audelin here, seeking more into happiness. Um, I've been blessed, Mary Coco, I've been best blessed with some close friends to feel accepted and loved for who I am. And have also given me really good. They've given of themselves and their good qualities have rubbed off on me. They've gave me intimate uh, closeness, beautiful. Sorry, I couldn't see you before since Joel was on spotlight, but if you want to say something and share it, just wave and I can see you now and unmute you. I love that, Holly. I've been friends with my best friend since second grade. She helped me through a difficult time when my mom passed. That's awesome. She gave, she came up from Florida to spend a weekend with me. Yeah. So good. So good.
<laughs> while you're thinking about that. Um, oh, another comment here. Let's see. I don't know why this is not sliding down. <clears throat> Freedom to be myself in different highs and lows. Yeah. Thank you, Patty. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend of mine who's um, been friends with me for about 25 years, and he will challenge me sometimes when he sees me getting stuck in a rut. And um, I, I, I treasure, I have memories that go back over those years to significant points in my life where it, uh, he challenged me to move forward and it resulted in significant good things happening. And, uh, and that faithfulness and friendship has been there for that long. And so I deeply, deeply appreciate him. And it doesn't always come, you know, the thing with friends, it doesn't always come. If you've noticed that when a friend speaks to you to challenge you, it doesn't always feel good, <laughs> but you know that they love you. And, uh, and if you've got ears to hear it, you hear it. And otherwise, you get angry and defensive and the relationship starts to fall apart. So that's another reason why <laughs> friendships take some work. All right, Kevin, thank you. Uh, Jim, can you unmute him? I think I got the unmute. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking of my friend Keith. Um, <clears throat> he's an old friend from college. We've been hiking together several times. One occasion, he had to hurry back to the north end of Boston because there was a family event amongst his friends, and they had invited him to pray. And that was important to him to invest praying for his friends. On another occasion, we were driving up to the White Mountains. We stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru, and he strikes up a conversation with the woman in the window to find out she has a relative. And he says to her, well, we're both Christians. Can we pray for you right now? And what Keith continually teaches me is that I myself, I spend relationships like marked currency. I don't give them out freely. Keith gives out relationships freely. He jumps in with both feet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, this is, this is the reason why we're never complete without friends. You know, there's no such thing as being complete, you know. And by the way, we don't need to be. So you can relax into like, yeah, they're great at that. I will never be, but they stretch me and they grow me. And I want to be a little bit more like that. I will never be them entirely, but I will be a little bit more that way. Um, but it stretches us in and it also, we're inspired. We're richer because of it, right? So good. Yeah. So do. And then we'll turn it over to worship. So I'd like you to do this meditation with me. All right, so open your hands up like this. Can't see, I don't know if you can see, but my, my, uh, uh, the, the position is keep your hands open like this as if you're going to receive something, okay? I want you to keep your hands open like someone's about to put a million dollars in your hand. How would you put, how, <laughs> how would you posture, put your hands Receive. I mean, obviously, you're not going to receive a million dollars in cash. You couldn't do that in, in your hands. But 
Let's say it's a check, a million dollar check. Okay. Instead, what I'd like you to do as you um, close your eyes, the gifts of relationship, the people. I want you to imagine the people being deposited, your friends, the people that have been friends with you for some time, being deposited into your hands as riches. And as you imagine that happening, being dropped into your hands, I want you to contemplate appreciation, gratitude, joy. What Paul experienced when he says, I give thanks to God, remembrance of you. Let's practice Paul right now in his gratitude. Just hold your hands open. And imagine one by one these people being deposited into your hands and your heart filling up with joy and gratitude, love, appreciation. And as you do so, just maybe thank you, God, for these precious souls. Thank you for these gifts. And then offer a prayer, because in some cases, this will evoke also some sadness in relationships that didn't last. Maybe some shame around yourself and other people. So just move away from the shame, hear it, see it, feel it, but then, yeah, help me. I want to be rich in relationships. Not many, but quality. I want to be rich in relationships. <laughs> 